we're going to begin reading in verse 32, but I have a question for you before we start. Okay. By show of hands, since becoming a Christian, how many of you have failed? Okay, okay, okay. Just her? Okay, just Elaine? All right, I see that hand, Elaine. <laughs> well, I'm sure if I were to ask a few other questions, like no show of hands on this, how many of us have failed in some really spectacular fashion? Um, some way that even, even now as we look back, we just, the only proper response is to shake your head in disgust at yourself and shame. And you just think, how could I have done that even as a Christian? Okay. So here's the question. We know how we respond to that sort of failure, don't we? We know what our heart is. But the main question is, how does Jesus respond when we fail? What does he do? What does Jesus think? How does Jesus act toward us when we fail? Okay. So I'd like us to explore that a little bit today. And we're going to have five points, five points of Jesus's response to our failure. How does Jesus respond to our failure? And I've had us turn to Mark chapter 14. Now bear in mind, the disciples will fail more than what we're going to cover here right now. In fact, they're going to fail more in this particular scene. They're going to fail more later. They're going to fail more as after Jesus is resurrected and ascended and the Holy Spirit comes. But this is one of the failures that is most closely, um, most closely documented. Okay? And we can see a direct response from Jesus to this failure. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples... Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful. You know, I don't think you can improve on the King James on this one, so I'm going to say it like the King James does. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Let's pause right there. There's a distress in this moment that we're not going to explore today, but here we have God the Son asking for something from God the Father that is not the will of God the Father. Jesus is earnestly entreating God for something. In fact, he's going to ask God for something three times that is not God's will. Okay, And this may be the first time in known existence or in existence that the Son is asking for something that is not the Father's will. And here, the humanness of Jesus, the thing that makes him a high priest that can identify with us, is on full display. And he is at his 
neediest moment. He is in his moment of greatest human stress. It's so stressful, Luke tells us, that the blood vessels in the skin of his forehead explode, turning into drops of blood mingled with his sweat. This is an incredibly um, traumatizing moment for our Lord. And so he says, watch and pray. He's at his moment of greatest need. He's the, the, the forsaking that God is going to put on him, the fact that Jesus has become sin for us, that process is beginning. And that divide between him and God, that separation that we deserved, is starting to thunder down on the Lord Jesus. And it's extremely traumatic. Let's keep reading. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they didn't know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping, taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And we know, of course, that Judas had brought a large number of armed guards and he was about to betray the Lord Jesus with a kiss. So here we see spectacular failure from 11 Christians. 11 men who just a few minutes earlier had told Jesus, we will not betray you. We will die for you. They were so certain that they would stick with Jesus. And now, in his moment of greatest earthly need, they, each of them, fall asleep. Fall asleep. So how does Jesus respond to this failure? How does he respond to any failure? Well, first of all, I want us to note that Jesus, ex Jesus accepts the certainty of our failure. Jesus accepts the certainty of our failure. Jesus isn't surprised. Jesus isn't nearly as surprised as we are when we fail in one of these spectacular ways. Okay. The disciples failed, I want you to know, despite a bounty of privileges. Who could have said that they didn't have a good pastor? Did, did the disciples fail because their pastors had failed them? No, they had Jesus as their pastor. It, there wasn't a lack of spiritual leadership that had caused them to fail. They had the greatest shepherd in the world. They didn't fail because of a lack of education. They spent three years at the feet of Jesus learning, getting exclusive access to the Savior. They could always ask him questions every time he said something. All those words that he said that John said could fill every book in the entire universe, the ones that we're not privy to, we won't know until maybe yet another time. 
they could always ask, they could always know, they could always probe and meditate and get detail. They walked three years with God in the flesh. Three years, they had the best discipleship imaginable. Could any of them say their lead pastor and discipler had failed them? No, no, not at all. They had the privilege of this being a holiday. How many of us have failed spectacularly on a holiday? And you, it feels like you make it, it makes it worse. This is the Passover. They've just eaten the meal. This is the biggest holy day of the year. And yet for all of those privileges, they can't stop themselves from failing. And they, they fail despite Jesus warning them. He warns them right at the start. He warns them all throughout. Pray so that you don't enter into temptation. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. And I also want us to notice that their nature of their failure isn't a sin of commission. It's a sin of omission. Okay? And I think those are the types of sins that are often most overlooked. I think let's, let's just get put an example out there. Let's say over the course of these 365 days you stole $20 from somebody. Stole it, didn't pay it back, just stole it. But over the course of those 365 days, did not spend a single minute in private prayer. Which is the greater failure? The stealing of $20 or the failure to pray? Well, I, I think it's probably the second one. I'm certain of it. This is a failure of omission rather than a failure of commission. And I think these are the types of failures we need to be a little more sensitive to. But this was certainly right at their feet. We'd already noted how they failed collectively. It wasn't as though one of them kept falling asleep and they went around him and kicked him, you know, get up, Andrew, get up. There was, there was no... Mutual encouragement here. The entire team was asleep on the bus, as it were. And they failed, like we said before, at the moment of Jesus' greatest need. He is, he is so vulnerable, so needy. As a matter of fact, we're told in a different part of the Bible that the thing that strengthened him was that God sent an angel to comfort him. It, it took an angel to strengthen him for what he was about to do. And so here Jesus is with, three, with 11 friends. He counts them as friends. He loves them. They love him. He's in a moment of deep need and distress. And they fail him despite all of these privileges. But I want us to notice that Jesus expects this, in a sense. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. We're told that Jesus is compassionate. The Lord, Yahweh, is compassionate like a father. He remembers our frame. He knows that we're dust. Notice when Jesus comes back, 
he doesn't shout or yell or raise his voice. What does he say? He says, it's, it, it's enough. It's enough. There's something more that needs to take place. And he's not going to get petty with them and beat them up on this one point. There's an expectation that they're fallen and human and dust. And he understands that. He remembers that. And he doesn't come down on them harder than perhaps they deserve. In fact, I would say he comes down on them very lightly. Jesus accepts the certainty of our spectacular failure. And that's what makes him different than us. When you apply for a loan at a bank, for example, which I've gotten accustomed to, given that we've been applying for parsonage loans, the bank sends you reams of paperwork. And do you know what they're trying to, to find out? Do you know what they're trying to find out with that, those reams of paperwork? Here's what they're trying to find out. Are you going to fail us? <laughs> and, or what assurances can you give us that you won't fail us? Okay? Now, we usually, typically, try to avoid friendships and relationships and partnerships with those people that we know are going to disappoint and fail us in some remarkable ways. But that's what makes Jesus different. He moves toward us and saves us and uses us with full knowledge of what lies inside of us. And it doesn't slow him down from befriending us and partnering with us and drawing us to himself. He knows our failures far better than we do. And yet he still moves forward with us and befriending us using us. Isn't that amazing? He accepts the certainty of our failure and moves toward us even so. Number two, Jesus pays for the cost of our failure. Jesus pays for the cost of our failure. We know here that these fellows had fallen asleep. They we're smarting over that. Peter had just been told a few minutes before that he was going to deny the Lord three times. And in his naivete, he went out, set about to prove the Lord wrong. And he falls asleep. Poor Peter. And in fact, Jesus singled Peter out on that first rebuke. He says, Simon, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Because... He knew, what was, he knew the battle that was raging in Simon's heart. And so Simon, now smarting over this failure, the troops come upon him, and what does he do? He takes out his sword and strikes a soldier and hits him in the ear. My guess, I've, I've heard preachers come down on Peter's aim, like he's a fisherman, not a soldier. That's why he hit him in the ear instead of the head. But let's face it, the guy swinging the sword at has reflexes, and he probably moved. Okay. Well, ear is gone. What has Peter just done? You strike 
a government soldier that way back then. That's your life. Peter should have paid for that with his life. And Jesus covers for him, doesn't he? He actually covers the consequence of that particular sin in the immediate. He reaches up and he heals the man's ear. In a sense, saying, no harm, no foul. Peter, be on your way. And Peter took off running. Now, there was far greater payment to come, correct? You might want to jot down 2 Corinthians 5.21, where we're told Paul explains that Jesus, that God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We fail, and that creates a debt, a debt that we owe to God, a debt for all those sins of commission, a debt for all those sins of omission. And Jesus pays for them all. He pays the punishment for all the sins that we deserve. And he pays the debt of righteousness for all the things that we omit. And even though we're the ones paying, we're the ones spending, Jesus is the one paying. That's how Jesus responds to our failure. He pays for the debt we owe. Now, sometimes he allows consequences to come upon us, but that's out of his grace so that we know better the next time. And sometimes consequences for what we do put us in contact with other people that need the grace from God that we've received. The consequences that Jesus might choose to deliver to us are always good and kind and merciful. But we would have to be honest in saying, wouldn't we, that if Jesus were to dole out all the horizontal consequences we deserved, we would all be in big trouble, wouldn't we? He often shields us from the horizontal consequences that we deserve while paying the vertical one that we could never pay. Correct? He often does that. Number three, Jesus intercedes through our failure. Jesus intercedes during or through our failure. When these guys kept falling asleep, would we have gotten mad at Jesus for going, hang it all, these guys can't even stay awake and storming off. <laughs> I'm about to pay for these guys' sins and they can't even rouse themselves. Did you know that when you're in a season of sin and you're away from the Lord, when you're wandering away from the Lord, Jesus hasn't stopped praying for you. Jesus keeps praying for you and interceding for you and sending the Spirit to intercede in your heart on God's behalf, even while we're in the middle of those sorts of spectacular failures. Again, you might want to write down Hebrews 7.25. We're told that we have a high priest who made sacrifice once, made one sacrifice once for all. He rose again, and now he is always living to be interceding for us. Uh, the translation that we have says, ever lives to intercede for us. 
I, I think that's pretty good, but that, 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 in fact, that's a great translation. Except sometimes when you read things in Greek, it adds a little meaning that wouldn't, you wouldn't want that in the translation of your Bible. It's, it's cumbersome. But it helps sort of bring out the meaning. And here, here's my hyper-literal translation that you would never want to buy, but will help you understand it. Okay? Jesus is always living to be interceding. He is always living right now to be presently interceding for you on our behalf or for our benefit. There is never a moment whether you're raptured with meditations on the goodness of God or whether you find yourself in a house of ill repute, or anything in between. There is never a moment that Jesus isn't alive right now, talking to God on your behalf. Even when we're in the middle of those spectacular failures, Jesus is interceding. And even when the Spirit strikes home at our hearts and convicts us of our sins, Jesus is still interceding. And even when we turn over our souls to him and ask him for the grace to overcome this particular sin of commission or omission, Jesus is still interceding. And Jesus is interceding whether we're doing right or wrong, good or evil. He's always interceding for you if you're in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Keep this in mind. When the disciples fell asleep, Jesus kept praying. He didn't stop praying. And even when we're asleep at the wheel, Jesus keeps praying. Number four. When we fail, Jesus moves toward us in peace. Even when we fail, Jesus moves toward us in peace. We can see right here in this passage, like we said before, when Jesus comes and talks to the disciples, he doesn't yell at them. He's not raising his voice at them. He's reasoning with them. When it's all wrapped up and they've, he's woken them for the final time, he doesn't have one final word of um, comeuppance for them. He's not trying to lodge one last word of gotcha before he's carried off by the soldiers. Even when Peter denies him in front of a bunch of non-Christians and then denies him with a curse, and then denies him with a curse again, all Jesus does is look at him. That's all he does. He just looks at him. Yet, in the wake of all of that failure, when Jesus sees them again, what are the first words out of his mouth? Peace be to you. Those are the first words. It says that a few days later, the ladies went to the tomb. They didn't find the body there. In fact, they saw some angels. One even saw the Lord. They went back and they told the disciples. I think this is so 
so good, by the way. The disciples didn't believe the ladies. They, I don't know why they didn't. They just didn't. And I can, I can only imagine. I know, I know when, I think back to my five-year-old daughter, Grace, when she sees the moon during the day. She says, Daddy, I see the moon. Now, if you say, no, it's daytime, you didn't see the moon, I guarantee you something. You are wrong, she is right. She saw the moon, okay? And if you say, it's daytime, honey, no, I know what I saw. <laughs> she gets righteously indignant. She has seen the moon, okay? And I can only imagine these ladies going back, having seen an angel, and they say to the disciples who think, I'm, I'm a disciple, I'm an apostle. They're like, buddy, five minutes ago we saw an angel, so don't think yourself too high. And I'm telling you what I saw, okay? They didn't, they didn't believe me. Didn't believe me. Well, now they're afraid, and they're in an upper room, and they've got the doors locked. And in walks Jesus, right through the locked door. And the first words out of his mouth are, Peace be to you. In fact, later, he goes and visits Peter and the others. They went fishing. I don't know if they were supposed to go fishing or not, but either way, they were fishing. And they didn't catch anything. And Jesus tells them, cast your net on the other side of the boat. And they catch a ton of them. They drag it to the shore. And there, Jesus is waiting for them with breakfast. He's not saying, he's not making them rehearse a certain number of words before he'll restore fellowship to them. He's not making them reach a certain required number of groveling minutes before he returns to them, does he? No, his very first words to them are peace, peace, I am here in peace. Now, Peter is still clearly, very clearly smarting over his failure. The other disciples are also clearly smarting over their failure. And Jesus lets them speak to that. He doesn't shut them down. He doesn't um, silence the expressions of their guilt and shame. But at the same time, he's not hitting them so hard over the head or making them, making them um, come up to a certain standard of poverty and spirit. In one sense, the work of the Spirit is already done in that, and they've, they've already come to the point of grief and despair and godly sorrow. And now Jesus is just coming to them in peace, wholeness, unity, oneness. So when you've sinned, I want you to know that if you've already gotten to the place of if you've already gotten to the place of sorrow and repentance and you want restoration, Jesus comes to you in peace. Now, that's not to say that you can just keep doing 
what you're doing. When Jesus talks to the churches in the book of Revelation, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Okay? Jesus doesn't come right through the door to people that don't want him coming in. There is a, an element of separation there. He, I'm here, you're there, and it's your job to open to me, right? But I'm talking about a situation, like, that's a totally different situation, a person who's sinning and wants their sin and wants to keep their sin and have their sin in Jesus too. That's a different animal altogether. John says, if that's the case for you, you need to see if you're actually really a Christian. This is a person who has failed and that evidence of their failure is smitten them. They understand the depth of their depravity. and Oh, Lord, they're crying out, what a wretched man I am. When that's the case, the Spirit has already done that sort of work in your heart. Jesus' first words to you are, are peace. Peace. I paid for this. I'm interceding for you. I'm moving toward you. And last... When we fail, after moving toward us in peace, Jesus restores us to service. He restores us to service. He restores us to usefulness. I will never forget in one of our little family talks, we were talking about the failure of Peter. And how Jesus called Peter, feed my lambs, feed my lambs, feed my lambs. And my daughter Charlotte said in a way that only a little girl could say, she said, so let me get this straight, Dad. And I said, okay. She goes, Peter lied. He lied. And he lied again. And Jesus made him a pastor? I said, yep. And she goes, In her mind, three strikes, you're out, you know? But Jesus, who's a compassionate father and knows our frame, remembers that we're dust, who pays for whatever failures we bring to him in repentance, who intercedes for us before, during, and after that failure, who moves toward us in peace. No matter what you've done, he, he wants to bring you to a place of usefulness in his kingdom. Now, I don't know what that usefulness will look like. But rest assured, you won't be disappointed in it. In fact, you'll think it's too much. You will say, I, des I don't deserve that. And that's the very point. It's grace. And grace is always undeserved. Grace is always unmerited. And the second we think we have it, it ceases to be grace. When we fail, and when we fail spectacularly, Jesus' heart is to restore us to kingdom usefulness. And he doesn't do it grudgingly. He doesn't do it um, in so, on sort of a trial basis. This is his heart's disposition to restore us to usefulness in his kingdom. Well, I hope this has been a help to you. Please don't go out and fail spectacularly just so you can experience all of these things. 
But when you do, and we all will, me included, when we do, remember these five points of Jesus' behavior towards spectacular failures. Okay, Let's pray. Father, give us grace to remember who you are. May that keep us from sin, but in the wake of sin. Enable us to run to you and find help for our souls in great time of need. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.